welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine that affects our pets. We'll be discussing crazy internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to be the best tech we possibly can. Let's start the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. We're super excited that you are still with us. So I am Yvonne. I am the host. And then I am today joined by Jordan. Hello again. Hey. Hi. So we are going to be talking about pain today. And I'm (laughs) going to let Jordan take it away this time. So girl, why are we talking about pain? Well, we like to discuss pain and how to manage it in our patients. I think a lot of people think in internal medicine, you don't really come across that. But in general practice, you do probably a little bit more just considering broken bones and and surgeries and everything in between. So we wanted to kind of bring the topic about different pain management methods, what to look for, how to tell if your patient's in pain, and then client education, of course. Wait, I'm, I'm going to say something really quick though, but I see plenty of pets be painful in internal medicine. I think people forget that things like pancreatitis is really, really painful or IBD, you know, if they're, if their guts are painful. So just what I mean by that is, you know, in your, in your day-to-day life, don't assume a pet is not painful because you're like, ah, oh, that doesn't seem painful. Really take a moment, step back and assess your patients and, and talk to your doctor and talk to your, you know, coworkers and be like, Hey, what's going on? And, and talk to your clients. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. If, exactly. they're, if they're quiet, but they're normally a crazy dog, but you've never seen them crazy. You may not realize that that's abnormal for them. So I just yeah. had to throw that out there. So sorry. No, I agree. I I definitely agree. I just think in like general practice, you assume that the painful things are surgery or broken bones. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we'll discuss like what to look for. So when you do have that like abdominal pain patient, you can kind of assess what the signs that they're showing to show you that they're painful. Yeah, perfect. So why is pain bad? Well, according to the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, again, doesn't always pertain to surgeries, but they just made an article about it after being in pain for a set amount of time, stress hormones are released as the pain continues. And um, when the downside of pain starts to outweigh, you know, keeping them quiet, everybody says that you kind of want a pet to be a little, at least I've heard this in the past, you want a pet to be a little painful so they don't move around as much and injure themselves more. So when the pain starts to outweigh those quote unquote benefits that I don't necessarily agree with, then the effects of pain can include, you know, they can, your pet might stop eating or drinking, especially while in the hospital. It can increase their stress levels. They have poor intestinal function and poor mobility. So they do not um, have the nutrient uptake that they should, even if they are eating. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course, there's other risks like infection, increased risk of infection and delayed wound healing. I don't think people know that if your pet is painful after a surgery, it will take longer for that wound to heal. Yeah. I think, I think that's really interesting because if you think about stress hormones, one of the biggest ones of of that is cortisol and Mm -hmm. cortisol steroids. We all know that a patient that is on steroids, especially long-term steroids, they're going to be more 
you know, susceptible to infections and wounds are not going to heal the way that they should. So I think remembering physiology and anatomy and stuff like that, I think will help too. And not just, you know, I, I, and I agree with you, by the way, I have worked with some, I call them the cowboy vets that are just, Oh yeah, no, we don't give, we don't give pain medications because we want the dog to be quiet. Yeah. Great. They're quiet, but there's other ways to do that besides making them be painful because things happen. Like, you know, if, if, if an incision is painful, you potentially can have that animal start chewing at the incision and then open it all up. Right. So, so yeah, there's, there's definitely that. Well, not to mention when they go home, you're going to have the clients complain that they do seem painful. They're restless. They can't get comfortable. They can't sleep. Um, They're not moving around a whole lot. So then they're urinating on on themselves. And then of course that increases your risks for other complications or they become aggressive, especially, I mean, I've been bitten by a dog with an osteosarcoma um, because it was so painful. And, you know, you can't fault a patient for that. He, he came in for the osteosarcoma. So, of course, we started pain medication after. But on initial exam, he was extremely painful. Right. You know, so just pain management in general to kind of combat some of those behaviors is necessary. Yeah, 100% agree with that. And, and it's important to, to also let our clients know these things as well because I think they they don't understand what the the you know behavioral slash attitude change with our pets mm-hmm. might mean they're you know they may associate it with like oh well we moved their favorite toy and so now they're just quieter than normal well that is possible but we need to make sure that there's not something else underlying it too so yeah exactly I mean pets exhibit so many different behavioral symptoms, quote unquote, just to kind of tell you that they're in pain. I mean, cats are probably the worst at telling people that there's something wrong. (laughs) So as we all know, but kind of before we dive into all that, like the process of pain is a sensory process. I always suck at saying this word, but nociception is what it's actually called. (laughs) I was going to say it's nociception. Yeah, we got it. All right. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It usually takes me a couple tries. (laughs) Good job. Yeah. Um, First try. Yeah, yeah, but it in, it involves a series of just electrical events, obviously starting at the site of injury. So your dog is walking and steps on, I'm going to say seashell because that's what happens around me. So they step, <laughs> they step on an oyster shell um, and it oh cuts God, their paw. I'm so jealous, by the way. I was right? like, nail. You're like, nail, because I'm by the shore, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Make it a little bit more pleasant. <laughs> and then that pain of you know, the shell slicing the paw pad is then conveyed in by signals to the brain, resulting in a perception of the pain from the brain. And then the brain's like, hey, your foot hurts. Yeah. So, and then they start limping. <laughs> yeah. And a, and a really important thing to remember about that, the pain pathway, right? So it goes from the foot, but then it goes to the spine. Mm-hmm. And then the spine does have a little bit of a regulatory effect that says, is this worth sending up to the brain or is it no big deal? And so that's important when we're talking about perception of pain and local blocks and those kinds of things. So just kind of keep that in, in mind too when, when we're talking about pain. Um, yeah. and this, is, this could very well be the difference between the little chihuahua that you look at it funny and it feels painful, right? The giant, like I'm going to say pit bull because pit bulls never feel any pain, but, but they probably do. 
it's just their pain pathway that's responding differently. So we just, just because they're acting stoic doesn't mean that the pain's not there. So that's, yeah. just, that's also an important reminder. Yes, exactly. So then we get into the talking about the different signs of pain. So you have behavioral signs of pain and then physiological signs of pain. So this is kind of where it gets into the nitty gritty details of like monitor your patient, get baseline vital signs, get baseline like how their behavior is when they walk into the clinic. Obviously, it's going to be a little skewed because they're coming into a vet clinic. They're uncomfortable. But there's signs that you can tell the owner to watch out for when they get home too. So physiological signs of pain are changes like within the body. So increased heart rate, increased respiratory rate, increased blood pressure. So that's kind of goes to where like you want to monitor those baseline vital signs. Temperatures of dogs or cats anywhere between 99.5 to 102.5 degrees Fahrenheit or for our UK friends, 37.5 degrees Celsius to 39.1 degrees Celsius is normal. You have a dog that come in that comes in and is showing signs of pain and has a fever of 103.1, you're, you're going to want to take that into account as you start pain management to see if you can get that temperature down. It doesn't always necessarily mean like an infection of some sort. It could mean pain. Mm. That's, I think that's a big thing to remember. I relate it to internal medicine because, because that's what I do. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, we have pets that come in with like immune mediated polyarthritis. Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes the first thing that you see is all of a sudden their temperature goes up, right? They're, they're a little bit stoic. Like they're still walking kind of normally, but all of a sudden, you know, you've had normal temperatures of like 1017, but they come in this time and they're not, you know, being crazy. So you can't associate it with that. They're, they're still look normal, but maybe their temperature is 1031. And you're like, wait a second why is the temperature up? It, it can be pain. So that's, it's, it's funny that we don't always think that, you know, well, yeah, we always go, Oh, it's everything else. And it's like, well, but it can also be pain. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of goes to towards those cats that we come in with fever of unknown origin. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to really kind of evaluate to see if there is a painful aspect to it, not just a fever of unknown origin. It's not just like cystitis. I mean, it could be and their bladder is extremely painful. Then, of course, you spoke about the stress hormone release, so cortisol. You're doing lab work, and you notice that the cortisol is through the roof. Just everything else is normal, but for some reason, you're running cortisol to rule out other diseases, and you see that the cortisol is falsely increased because of that stress. Yeah, and, and, and that's part of the reason why that test isn't you know, you may, you may do that test, but it doesn't guarantee that it's a adrenal gland issue, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. why there's other tests to rule that out, but it is a stress hormone and, and we need to be, be careful with that. Yeah. 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 So, and then of course, I mean, panting is a sign. So normal respiratory rate in a dog is between 15 and 30 breaths per minute. While for a kitty cat, it's between 20 and 30. So Panting is kind of hard to assess because usually they come in and they're like, you're panting and cats panting is always bad. But, <clears throat> um, but if their respiratory rate when they're quote unquote resting is, you know, 48, then you might know that something's up. And then same with heart rate. I mean, small dogs and cats vary. So they, small dogs are around 140 to 180 beats per minute, while medium to large dogs can be a lot lower at 60 to 90 beats per minute. And then even if you have a very athletic dog, it can be even slower. And then for a cat, it's between 140 to 220 beats per minute. 
So there's a wide range there of what's normal versus what's abnormal. But if you've seen this dog in the past and you're taking vital signs at normal physical exams, you should kind of get a baseline if their normal is around 86 beats per minute and then they come in one day not acting right and they have a heart rate of 140, then you might have a clue that something's going on. Yeah. And, and to go along with that, you know, I, in, in my practice, I see medical records, right? We request medical records from our primary vets. And there's been numerous times where we'll get records and a patient has come in and their vitals aren't recorded. Yeah. So this is, this is definitely a tech tip, right? Every single time you put your hands on a patient and it comes in, it needs vitals and it needs to be recorded in the medical record because we you know, we don't see these patients on a regular basis until there's an issue, right? Yeah. So knowing what the normal vitals are when they're relatively healthy or they are healthy is, is huge for us. So just make sure to keep your medical records the best that they can, right? We're trying to elevate our profession. We need to be professional and keep good medical records. Exactly. Even if it's not required by your doctor, I've worked for those doctors. It's not required every general practice, but just do it because you know, it's the right thing to do. You you can easily get a temperature pulse and respiration and a weight within like three minutes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's those tips and tricks that you don't have to count a whole minute to get that pulse. You can count 15 seconds and multiply it by four. I've just gotten so used to it over the years that now I count six seconds and then multiply it by 10. You know, it's, there's tips and tricks to make it go quicker. And yeah, it's not as accurate as if I were to put an EKG on the dog and get a heart rate that way, but you're still going to have a general sense of like, yeah, the heart rate I got is 140 EKG got 142. Yeah. And and the other thing to go along with that is you should have a stethoscope. Yes. Please have a stethoscope and, and listen to your pets because the more you listen, the more you're going to start catching things that sound different and you may Mm -hmm. not know what it is yet, but you know, if if you start listening to what normal is, you're going to start picking up on abnormal and you might pick up on a heart murmur that nobody else has picked up before, or you may pick up an arrhythmia that nobody has heard before. And then you can talk to your, your vet. And I still do that. I go, Hey, I think I hear a murmur, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't diagnose it, you you know, whatever, but you can talk to the doctor and be like, Hey, I hear a heart murmur, or at least I think I hear a heart murmur. Can you please take a listen and just make sure that I'm not hearing something weird. And that's, that's huge when you can start noticing that. Like I, I remember I celebrated when I heard my first heart murmur. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's nice too, especially if you have a veterinarian willing to tell you like, yeah, you know what? Good job. That's like a grade one, which is super difficult to hear or no, I don't hear it this time, but next time I hear one, I'll let you listen. Yeah. So definitely try to take advantage of that. The other thing too, with, with clients is they don't have stethoscopes at home, right? But I've had clients do a couple of different things. They can either, you know, put their hands on their, their, their pet's chest. Sometimes they can feel pulses, but not, not very often. I've had clients do the whole, like, put their cat up to their ear and listen, right? Mm-hmm. So they can monitor vitals at home as well. And and we'll put a link in the show notes about this. We have a good blog post that talks about how to monitor vitals at home. Yeah, um, definitely. And the other thing too, when you're talking to clients, I don't know about you, but I get this all the time from clients. How do you know if they're painful at home? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I tell them, 
animals do commonly one of two things, right? They, if they're painful, they'll either lay on their bed and not want to move unless you really coax them because they're painful, right? So it's kind of like us when you have a really bad headache, you're either laying in bed and you don't want to move and you're just, you don't respond to things the way you normally would. Or if you, you know, hurt your back, you're shifting around uncomfortable, moving, and you can't get, you can't, can't find that spot that's great. So I usually tell clients that, you know, a lot of times that's what you're going to look for is either they're not moving as much as they normally would, or they're moving way more than they normally would, right? Yeah, so exactly. And those are subtle things that they could be doing, but that's something that they can look for as well. One that falls under the, those behavioral changes. So you have those physiological changes of the vital signs. Mm-hmm. Then you have those behavioral changes that you really want to look out for as well. Again, skewed being in the clinic, but tell your clients to look out for them. Or if the patient's in the hospital for a couple of days and on pain management, you want to look for these vital signs or these behavioral signs. So restlessness, like you were saying, or inability to move or reluctance to move, trembling, weakness, of course. And then you have the droopy ears, the droopy eyes, hiding, self-mutilation, like you talked about, looking at those incisions, or sometimes in kitties, they stop grooming. Or excessive grooming, right? Yeah, exactly. We see those cats come in with like gut disease where they've just licked all the hair off their abdomen. Yeah. They're, they're naked. Like you don't even have to shave for an ultrasound. So those are, those are things to be looking for as well. Yeah. And then of course, agitation. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I say a lot of bad words when I hurt myself <laughs> and I'm very grumpy. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm perfect when I hurt yeah. myself. You're just like, Oh, ow. <laughs> yeah. So it's just those things that you kind of want to look for behavior wise. And you can even separate it on the chart. You can say behavioral changes I'm noticing and then physiological changes I'm noticing. And, mm-hmm. and it's good to remember too, subjective versus objective, right? Subjective yeah. is more behavioral things that you might be noticing and, and it depends on how you, you know, word it. But objective is this is their heart rate. This is their respiration rate. This is what we're noticing. So just keep that in the back of your mind too when you're yeah. hoarding those things or talking to clients. When you're, you are in charge as a veterinary technician of your patient's pain, So when you feel like your patient's painful or not being adequately managed with their pain medications, you want to bring it to the veterinarian's attention. The more information you give your veterinarian, the better. So you need to, you can't just say, Hey, I think fluffy's painful and not say why you want to say, you know, Hey, fluffy's restless temperature of one Oh two seven, not really willing to eat or drink and not moving around too much aside from like not being able to get comfortable. Things are changing. And I think we need to increase pain management and bring that to the attention of your veterinarian and come up with a plan together. You are responsible for watching that patient. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that goes a huge way with your doctors. If you can give them concrete information to say, this is why I think they're painful. They're more likely to listen to you than if you're like, I think Fluffy's painful. They'll be like, great. I'm glad you think that, right? Yeah. Hopefully they're not doing that. But I mean, in the back of their head, that's probably what they're doing. They're like, okay, well, give me reasons for it. Right. Or ask them, ask them if you want them, if they want you to do something. You say, you give them all the reasons why you think Fluffy's painful. And then you say, would you like me to check a blood pressure too? If blood pressure is high, then yeah, the pet might be painful. Yeah. You know, so if they want more answers as to why you think that pet's painful, try to give them a step as to 
you know, I can do this to kind of help prove it. So I think, I think that's key. Communication is key when talking to your veterinarian and kind of speaking up for your pet. They can't do that. So you need to be the one that can say, hey, we need to increase this or decrease it. You know, you got to have that balance of, is this dysphoria or is this pain? Mm, yeah. Yes. I, I, we've had that in numerous times where like our surgical patients, especially like TPLOs, I feel like in my clinic where, you know, they get a nerve block and then they have surgery and they're maybe running on a fentanyl CRI and, you know, they gave, gave them carprofen post-op because they're being good and doing multimodal. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but you know, they've got all that. And then they put the fentanyl patch on them to get it to kick in. Cause it takes eight to 12 hours. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're flailing and you're like, okay, wait, is this because they're painful or is it because we've just given them a boatload of pain medication? So that is hard to figure out sometimes if it's dysphoria or if it's pain. Yeah. Well, especially with the, like the not moving, I mean, you're going to have drunk patients who are reluctant to move because they're dizzy. So observation before and after medications are given is, is definitely key. Yeah. Monitor changes. And it is a very fine line to kind of tell if your pet's kind of howling because they're dysphoric or if because they're painful. Uh, yes, Definitely. Yeah. And then another, another part to talk about is going to be the spontaneous versus iatrogenic pain. And does everybody remember what iatrogenic means? <laughs> I got to say that was something I freshened up on when studying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So just in case you can't remember, what is iatrogenic again? So iatrogenic pain is pain that is kind of caused by us. So when we say that, we mean like surgical procedures, declawing. If people still do that, it's still out there. Bays, neuters, surgical, fixing CCL tears, abdominal explorers. There's a range between mild, moderate, and severe pain that you cause. Um, obviously, if you are doing a TPLO, you're, that's probably going to be more on the moderate to severe side. Chest tubes are painful. Uh, <laughs> so it's pain that we cause that we want to manage. And then spontaneous is the pet or the, the, the animal's body has kind of caused it. You know, it's whether that's wounds or, you know, a pet with osteoarthritis, you've got the, the disc disease, back disease. I would, I would even say things like pancreatitis. I mean, plural fusion's got to be uncomfortable. So it's yeah, like, yeah. and cancer, cancer can definitely be painful. Oh, cancer, cancer can do whatever it wants. Um, yeah. <laughs> and even like a bad infection. So yeah. abscesses, kidney infections, bladder infections, those are all painful. So that's, that's an a, a example of like the spontaneous pain versus iatrogenic pain. They do have different levels of pain associated with that. So those are things to just kind of keep in mind of, of painful. What, yeah. what can be painful. Yeah. So when either you're causing the pain or if your pet comes in painful, you got to just determine what to do with your drugs to manage this pain. As Yvonne said earlier, multimodal is best. So what we mean by that is using, and we'll, we'll go into more detail probably in a different episode because you can talk forever on multimodal pain, but using different types of pain management. So you have your NSAIDs to relieve inflammation along with opioids to relieve pain. So that would be multimodal. I personally am a big fan of blocks yeah. along with pain medication. And then, like I said, we'll definitely get into that a little bit more detailed. Um, and then I love CRIs too, especially with those severe pancreatitis cases. They're on a CRI of fentanyl. Sometimes we do TORB, especially if we want to keep them quiet. 
and versus like boluses of medication, they wear off a lot faster versus a CRI. You can kind of taper to your liking. You can say, Hey, I think this pet's a little bit dysphoric and let me wean back a little bit on this fentanyl CRI to kind of manage that. Yeah. And one thing to remember too, the the big difference between a bolus of it versus the CRI, a CRI, you know, you can use a smaller drug amount to get the same effect, right? Because we're, we're not having these giant peaks and valleys. The other issue with a bolus is each pet is pet's metabolism is going to be a little different. That's why a lot of medications, it's like four to six hours because we don't know, you know, is there, is their metabolism slowed? So it's actually six to eight hours versus four hours. And that, if you remember from school is um, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, (laughs) which I remember learning that and being like, why would I ever need to know this? But it, it, that is one of the reasons to, to understand it is each metabolism is a little bit different. That's why like your ED 50, your effective dose is for 50% of the population. Some are going to need way less of it. Some are going to need way more to get the same effect. You know, the boluses, you could be over-medicating them, but it's not lasting for long enough. And so now they're painful. And so then we, you know, we give them another medication, but they've already ramped up their pain and nerves are funny. You know, once they're stimulated, they like to be stimulated and keep responding. And sometimes they'll start over responding to the same stimulus that was just a little bit painful before. It's kind of like, I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a really bad headache, right. And you touch your skin and that hurts, it's because those pain receptors are firing and, and kind of overstimulated. So yeah. the CRI is great because now you've kind of cut that painful stimulus and, and they're not receiving more stimuluses. So sometimes if it, we kind of say that if you get behind the eight ball on it, sometimes no matter what drugs you give, you're still not going to control the pain, but yeah. if you can get ahead of it and you keep it from firing those pain receptors, you're, it's, it's going to be easier for you guys to manage these patients. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to let them become painful before their next dose of medications is due. Yeah. You really want to try to stay on top of it. And do you, uh, Jordan, at your clinic, do you guys do CRIs in syringe pumps or do you do them in fluid bags or like a combination? Like what are you guys doing? We do a combination. Like fentanyl will go in a fluid bag, but when we do the Torb CRIs or something like that, we'll, we'll usually put that on a syringe pump. And I like the Torb CRIs just because it's, that's more for like mild pain, but I can do like minimal doses and it keeps my patients so quiet, especially if they're super anxious in the clinic. Mm. I can do like a dose of 0.25 milligrams over an hour. And it's just enough to like manage their mild pain and keep them quiet. Hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. We, uh, we do a lot of fentanyl CRIs, but we use a syringe pump. And so we're usually doing, I think most of the times two to four micrograms per kilogram per hour, which is again, much smaller than like yeah. a fentanyl patch you're looking at. I mean, what is it? 20, like 12 microgram per hour patch for cats. Yeah. Which, yeah, exactly. You know, if we can monitor or we, we can maintain them with a CRI infusion, then sometimes that's better. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm a self-aware control freak. <laughs> so n- when we do something like a fentanyl patch, I feel like I can't control it. 
So I don't like it. So I prefer the CRI methods. Yeah. We usually use the fentanyl patches. Like if they're still a little bit painful, but we're sending them home. We we don't use the patches a ton in clinic because we can't adjust it if we need to. Yeah, exactly. So kind of leading into a couple cautions to look out for with your painful patients. We kind of already talked about the behavior changes and they can lash out. So definitely go slow and getting in and out of the cage with these patients or bringing them into a room or putting them on the table um, or getting a weight or a temperature. If they're painful, every little thing is going to be a little bit too much for them. Yeah. And, and also remember whatever you're doing, it may not be painful, but they're guarding themselves, right? That's Mm -hmm. that behavioral thing where it's kind of like us when we're, when we're painful, we get really crabby and we lash out at people around us. Dogs and cats, they do that as well. So go slow with them. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, give them and, space to know it's okay. Yeah, and educate the client too because the clients, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had a million clients tell me, oh, Fluffy would never bite me. And I'm like, <laughs> but <laughs> they could. I have a dog here who would never bite me, but sh- I'm... If you well, break she- a bone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's painful. Muzzle needs to be an option to keep everybody safe, especially if they're not letting you pick them up. Yeah. And, and I think too, with that, that ed, client education, you know, especially if they call you, like this is, this is kind of a classic example. A client calls, their dog was just hit by a car or their cat was just hit by a car. You need to have the discussion with them about somehow securing their mouth, right? I've, mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen several clients come in because they've been bit by the dog that would never bite them because that pet is painful. So using a muzzle, but nobody has muzzles at home unless their dog is a biter, right? Yeah, exactly. So so options to talk to them about is going to be like belts. So looping a belt around their mouth to keep them from biting. Socks. I've had people use socks. I'm like, use a tube sock. I don't care. Nylons, bathrobe ties, string. I say string as in thicker string, not string that's going to cut any circulation off. Shoelaces, those kinds of things, just to make sure the animal's not biting the owner. Um, Yeah. And I find towels go a long way too, or like thicker blankets even. Yeah. I use blankets all the time in the clinic. I know. Clients can use them too. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So wrapping them up gently in a thick blanket and still, A, I feel like it makes a lot of patients more comfortable if they can't really see someone coming at them. Yes. Um, And then like it's soft and they're not going to hurt anybody. And there's enough padding between your arm and the dog's face. Yeah. Um, So clients should be aware. I'm a big fan as well of e-collars. Yes. I will a lot of times use an e-collar over a muzzle, even in clinic, because I work internal medicine. We have a lot of respiratory patients. I can't put a muzzle on something that can't breathe through its nose or is in respiratory distress. So using an e-collar keeps the bitey part not as much of an option. Yes, it can still happen, but an e-collar like hopefully gives you some leeway that your hand's not going to go in their mouth. So that's an option for a client as well. You know, if they have an e-collar at home, tell them to put the e-collar on and that too can help prevent an animal from seeing around them. So yeah, exactly. And I find that the longer e-collars that are just too big for their face work best. I mean, especially if I'm getting into the cage and like, it's a 
painful pancreatitic patient who I just need to give an injection to the port to. And they're just like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I do find that very helpful. And kind of as we talked about, over-medicating is just as bad as under-medicating. You have that dysphoria. You have, you know, all those other signs that you just can't tell if they're painful or not. But you can assume that if you're over-medicating, that it's just, they're going to be drunk. They're not going to want to eat. They're not, they're bowels aren't going to move like they should. So they're not going to metabolize food like they should if they're getting too many pain medications, just because GI motility can slow with opioids and it can cause temperature temperature changes. So if you're pre-medding your patients prior to some sort of procedure and you notice that their temperature drops drastically and they're down to 98.1, you've got to kind of take into consideration, well, maybe I gave them too big of a dose. Yeah. Keeping an eye on their temperature is big, right? We don't want yeah. them to get cold because that also slows down metabolism. So it's almost like a double whammy, right? You've got yeah. slow of metabolism with the drugs and getting over medicated potentially, and then just temperature drops and then your metabolism slows. So then there's more drug in their system that they're absorbing and, and not getting rid of. So, you know, close monitoring of your, of your pet and your patients are good. Yeah, exactly. And I think too that people don't understand too. And I'll I'll definitely go into this probably as some sort of blood talk that we talk about on a podcast. But hypothermia can also inhibit coagulation too. So if you've just done a surgery and then post-op you're noticing that they're oozing just a lot more than they normally do, check the temperature or look back at the records during surgery and find out if they were hypothermic during the procedure because then you can be like, "Oh, that's why they're bleeding a little bit more and really get them warm. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully you're monitoring temperature pretty frequently with anything that's not super mobile and providing heat support, right? That's, yeah. that's big. Exactly. And another big caution that I think a lot of vet clinics don't talk about, unfortunately, controlled substances and they can be abused by clients. So if you have a client coming in being like, my dog needs more tramadol, my dog needs more tramadol. You know, really look up your state's guidelines too on how frequently you can prescribe that. I know in Georgia, we are only allowed to give a month's supply and you cannot refill it any sooner. Oh, wow. Yeah. So really pay attention. And then of course, coworkers can definitely abuse those controlled substances. So it really needs to be kind of closely monitored when prescribing pain medications, how frequently it's happening. If you're having a certain person in the clinic who's the only one filling, dispensing those meds, you really kind of keep, got to keep an eye on it and bring it to a supervisor's attention. Yeah. And with the coworker, I mean, I don't know if you guys, if, if you've heard about the, I think it's called the four eyes initiative mm-hmm. um, where you have two people looking at it, you know, yeah. and, and that's huge to go along with that. We, we talked about CRIs earlier. That is something too, that you really need to be aware of is if a patient doesn't use all of the CRI, yeah. also monitoring where the waste goes, right? Yes. You don't want... That fentanyl bag can't just be thrown in the trash. <laughs> well, but I mean, if you're... T- right, yeah. And it's, it's definitely state-specific <laughs> as well. But I mean, y- you want to make sure that someone isn't taking the, the leftovers. Yeah, right? exactly. You're like, oh, I'm going to throw it out. And then they don't. So that's... You know, we we have a policy when we're wasting medications at our clinic that you go to someone and have someone look and say, yep, I'm wasting it. We use the Cubex in our clinic. Yeah. So then we go and we log in our Cubex that we wasted that medication. Mm-hmm. And then we put the two initials of who saw it. And, and so yeah. 
because unfortunately, I think we've, we've touched on this a little bit is mental health in our industry, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't want someone to get addicted to controlled substances and then, you know, lose their license or the worst case scenario is, is they overdose or they take their own lives with, with the controlled substances. So we, we just really need to be cognizant of that as well. And there are initiatives out there to minimize the amount of the heavy duty controlled substances and going more with the multimodal with, you know, the, the lidocaine blocks, just the nerve blocks themselves and NSAIDs and, and all that stuff. So just, you know, that's a, that's a huge caution for our industry. And I think yeah. everybody talks about it. It's something that we can help minimize. So. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you have like set protocols in place. So that's also, that's definitely something to kind of be on the lookout for. Yeah. It's the tip of the week. So tip of the week, we talked about the behavioral changes with pain medication. Um, I personally like the Colorado State canine and feline acute pain scales. Kind of, it shows pictures of like what a super painful cat would look like. I believe the scales one through four, maybe one through five. We'll put the link at the bottom of our show notes just to their printable. So you can even put your own like clinics logo on them and have them around the clinic or even give them to clients so they can see like, all right, my cat's ears are back. He's growling. He's kind of in a curled up position. This is where he falls on the pain scale. Uh, pain scale. And, and to go along with that, recording the pain, the pain score that you get on your medical record. So having a line on your treatment sheet that says pain score. And that way, you know, there's no mistaking from one shift to the next, to the next, you know, was he good on this medication and not so good on this other one? So okay. using the, the, the pain score system that you have, if everybody uses the same pain scoring system, you're going to have less of that subjectiveness and more of the objective, which is, which is why those are out there. Yeah, exactly. Don't underestimate simple things. Like if you have a patient in the hospital and you're in charge of them, simple things like extra bedding, moving them around more, I know that there's certain situations where you don't want to get them up and moving, but sometimes walking is good for them. Same with passive range of motion. If you get in the cage with them and you just start moving that front limb, if they're extremely arthritic, hot and cold packs are always great too. I think people extremely underestimate hot and cold packs. They're simple things that can be done to try to help alleviate some pain. Yeah. And I will say that kind of think outside the box with this one. Remember your older patients are going to have arthritis. So getting them moving that super squishy bedding, like we have, it's like the the fleece material. Um, I don't know if you guys use that and, or like egg crates and stuff like that, putting that under something that's going to be absorbent and you can clean that really helps prevent pressure sores, which are painful. It helps, you know, get them moving. So yeah, I definitely agree. Like the movement and making sure they're not getting those sores is, is huge. Yeah, exactly. And then bottom line, some patients just need to go home. Some patients will act painful or just not thrive in a clinic setting. So they won't eat. And so you can't really tell if it's pain or stress. So some patients just need to go home, obviously with some adequate pain management. And then the owners can assess in a normal situation, how they think the pet is doing. Yeah. And we've done that in my clinic, especially our pancreatitis or like our diabetic cats or even our kidney cats. Sometimes we're like, you know what? We prefer 
for them to still be here because they need to eat and they need to do some of this behavior that we're looking for. But it usually is extremely stressful for these kids because they've never been out of their house before. So sometimes we just go, you know what, take them home overnight, see how they do. If all of a sudden they're much better at home, we'll touch base with you tomorrow. Maybe that's what they needed instead of staying in the hospital. So sometimes we just make that choice. We're like, okay, let's try them at home and, and do the trial. So that's, that's another part of that tip as well. Another quick tip too for those patients once they've gone home is, so internal medicine for pet parents, we've created a journal for owners. And if you haven't seen them, the great thing is, is you can record the treatments, so medications and you know monitoring vitals, but you can also handwrite in there a pain score. So if you're sending home that Colorado State pain score handout, you can actually give that to them and then tell the owners, hey, you know, monitor this and record it. So that way, when we're talking to you, we can see, you know, are things getting better? Or are they getting worse? Um, we'll put the link in the show notes for that as well. Definitely, definitely. And now for the question of the week. I think kind of as we wrap up, question of the week, of course, if you want to reach out to us, how does your practice manage pain and how do you educate your clients? So what different methods do you use in your practice to help manage pain of your patients? And then of course, like, do you have handouts to educate your clients? What do you tell them to look out for? And what do you tell them to do if something happens? So leave a comment resources to learn more. I got a lot of my information from my Bible. So the small animal internal medicine for veterinary (laughs) technicians and nurses book. And then of course, in our show notes, we'll leave the links to the blog post on internal medicine for pet parents for the pain education. And then the Colorado state university canine and feline acute pain assessment sheets. Yeah. So, and the other thing we'll link to is the American college of veterinary surgeons, kind of the article they have, which it has really good information. So I definitely would uh, recommend checking that out. And we'll also have, you know, a couple of the other things that we've talked about in here. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you get some stuff out of this pain episode. Uh, let us know again in the show notes what you what you got. Let us know if you've got any feedback. I think that's it unless you've got anything else that you'd like to touch on today. No, I mean, I love discussing pain. So if anybody wants to reach out um, and ask more questions, feel free to contact us. Yeah, I mean, anything else that you might want to hear specifically in future episodes, let us know. Sounds perfect. All right, you guys, well, have a wonderful week. Enjoy taking care of your patients and your clients. And we'll talk to you next time. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.